Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his weight. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you, that you sent your heart to understand and humbled yourself before the Lord, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is God's word. So I got a text message uh, a couple days ago. And uh, I actually wrote it down so I could read it to you. Your membership is on hold. To using your account as normally, you need to update some trouble with your current billing information. Click link below to update your account. 
Now, does this strike you as legitimate? I mean, should I, should I go ahead and do that? <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely want to update my trouble. Uh, and by the way, what membership? At any rate, so you're picking up the clues, as am I. There's something deeper going on here, isn't there? Don't you get the sense that that is what is going on in the world we live in, too? I mean, does it not seem as though there are forces at work behind world events battling to move history either away or towards God? This is not just a feeling. There is solid biblical evidence for it, and Daniel 10 reveals that in world affairs, there's far more going on than just what's on the surface. And so get ready for a look behind the curtain, and that's what we're going to do in this chapter. Now, the vision that was given to Daniel, this last one, is the fourth vision of the book of Daniel, actually spans three chapters. Uh, chapter 10 is just the introduction. Then in 11, we'll get into some pretty dense material. Then in chapter 12, we'll ask the question, so what? Uh, it is a master roadmap of what for Daniel is future world history. Now, much of what was predicted has actually already happened. So from our perspective, we can actually verify what was predicted. But the precision of the fulfillment of what has already happened tells us take very seriously what is yet to come that has not been fulfilled. So chapter 10 is the preface in which it explains, how did you get this information, Daniel? Then in chapter 11, which we'll uh, start on next week, you'll get a timeline of events, and it's a, uh, an amazing detailed account of world events pertinent to God's plan for his people. And then in chapter 12, there will be a kind of a question and answer session between Daniel and those who've delivered the message in which you'll say, what are the implications of this for God's people? And that's where we will have, I think, a wonderful time assessing what are we supposed to do in light of this? Now, especially in chapter 11, it's going to be some tough sledding. It's going to be pretty detailed. And you might be inclined to say, uh, <laughs> do we really need all this information? And well, that's a good question. I'll say more to that question, but let me just remind you of something. This is from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture which includes Daniel 11, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God says that Daniel 11 is profitable. It'll help us be adequate and equipped for every good work. God knows what he's talking about, and in Daniel 10 through 11, he is going to show us key principles for prevailing saints. This is not just a theoretical exercise. This matters. You will not grow in Christ and please Jesus without understanding WWD2. What's that? What would Daniel do? So, you ready? So, and I'm not going to read what Jen read, but I am going to just hit a few highlights on the passages, and you'll see them behind me. 
So this happened in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A message was revealed to Daniel. So we know where this is in the timetable. He was named Belteshazzar, and he's not in a, a good place. Now this is a summary intro. It's the third year of, of Cyrus. So this is probably around the time of the lion's den. Uh, we don't know for sure whether this was this message was delivered immediately before the lion's den or after, but it's in that window of time. Uh, two things we learned, the message is reliable. In other words, you can bank, you can take this to the bank. This is not like a bank in San Francisco. This is a good bank, okay? And it is laced with a recurring theme of warfare. There's gonna be conflict that's involved. Daniel tells us he was mourning, but he doesn't tell us why. Now I can speculate. Now please understand this is just speculating, but two years earlier, Gabriel explained that instead of 70 years, God was gonna use 77s of years to fulfill his good plan for Israel. And so one of the things Daniel's dealing with is delay. Why is God taking so much time? Furthermore, the three previous visions from chapters 7, 8, and 9 all predicted hardship and suffering for Israel. So he's facing delay of God's good plan, pain. Furthermore, Daniel has experienced firsthand the animus that can throw you in a lion's den. Now, I don't know if it's already happened yet, but even if it has not, he's working amongst a group who are looking for a way to be able to get rid of him. <laughs> or they just have, and he's been saved, rescued from the lion's den. So he's facing opposition. He has plenty of firsthand experience of what it is like to represent God in a world that is hostile to that. And then the fourth factor would be it's a group that has already departed from Babylon to Jerusalem. The edict allowing a group of about 40,000 plus Jews to return from Babylon to Jerusalem has already been passed and they've left. So there's uncertainty, what's happening with them? So delay, pain, opposition, uncertainty. I can see how Daniel would be mourning. He's basically saying, God, what is going on? Do you identify? Has God been delaying, at least from your perspective? Are you dealing with pain, opposition, uncertainty? What is God doing? Well, let's see what God decides to do for Daniel. And so in verses 4 through 6, we read that on the 24th day of the first month, while he was the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold, gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face uh, had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now he's at the Tigris River. We would have expected him to be uh, at a, the other river, but he's 50 miles from Babylon. He encounters a man-like, angelic figure who is dressed in white linen and wearing a, a pure gold belt. His 
eyes, his arms, his legs are gleaming, and his voice is like listening to a stadium crowd. You know, if you've ever been to a, like a UT game when the crowd is going crazy, that's what it was like listening to this guy. And if you want to substitute some other team, please do if I've just offended you, okay? Uh, his appearance looks similar to what Jesus looks like in Revelation 1. Uh, we've already been introduced to Gabriel. Is this Gabriel? Is this someone else? I don't know. He's not named. But he's definitely otherworldly. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. And I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Daniel's associates freak out. They go into a panic attack, but they don't know why. All they know is, ah, and they flee, and they see nothing. Daniel's reaction, he's sapped of strength. It's just like all the strength just runs out of him. The color is drained from his face. The sound of the voice, hearing this voice, just makes him kind of go unconscious. And then he's touched, and he's kind of trembling on all fours. <laughs> Daniel is experiencing sensory overload awe. Yes, it's a thing, uh, SOA. And he, he's just can't process what he's being exposed to. He said to me, oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But... The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I've been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Now I realize that uh, in the text that Jen was reading, it says you are loved, but I wanted, uh, this is one of those places where I'm not confident they've captured the Hebrew word. The word really would be esteemed. Now, is that close to love? Yes, but I want you to understand something that's a little bit different. Uh, he is considered precious, that is true. And I'm gonna explain that in just a minute. He says, I'm here for your benefit. I'm here to help you, Daniel. The angel commands Daniel to stand and, and Dan, Daniel, could stand. That command included the ability to be able to do it. He acknowledged, Daniel, your request was grounded in humility. So I have been instructed to come to you, presumably by God, on day one. Now, you ha I have to ask the question, how does God communicate? You know, do we get emails? 
does he send texts? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that somehow this angel, we don't know his name, received a message. And that message was, I realize you're in the middle of something from which it will be difficult to break free, but you need to go talk to Daniel. Now is that moment. So he tells Daniel, I was on assignment in Persia when I was commissioned to come to you. But I was engaged in a profound ongoing struggle with a demon connected to Persia. Fortunately, Michael, a high-ranking angel, came to Persia to oppose that demon so that I could be freed to come to you. In other words, uh, Michael came, and I was able to kind of tap out so that I could come talk to you. Now, I realize that this may seem like, this is, yeah, I know, but, <laughs> but there it is. And he says to Daniel, I am here to provide a thorough and somewhat detailed account of what's going to happen to your people, Israel, in the future. Now, I'm not going to just give you information. I want you to connect with this vision. And yes, those of you from uh, Wednesday night know, yes, that's the word being again. This so-called prince of Persia, who's a demon, is attempting to keep me from giving you this information. He was opposing me. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage. Be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. The conversation so far causes Daniel's head to go limp and he can't talk. But he's touched by this angel and he's strengthened and can speak and he says this vision so far has made me fearful and drained me of strength and he says how is it that I'm able to receive information from you I'm, I'm dumbfounded by this and the angel answers and confirms this God values you You are like a rare gem. And then he gives him four commands. Do not be afraid. Enjoy peace. Receive courage. Demonstrate it. And that helped Daniel. The encouragement and the command set actually strengthens Daniel. And he basically says, he arrives at this place where he says, okay, you have strengthened me. I am ready. Lay it on me. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? that I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. 
Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. The angel says, I mean, Daniel says, okay, okay, I'm ready. And then the angel says, there is a war raging, and I need to re-engage. But I have been able to briefly get away in order to communicate with you. And at the moment, doing so matters profoundly. You need this information. And by the way, those who read your book are going to need your information. But I need to get back to the spiritual warfare that is associated with Persia. Furthermore, a new front is going to be opening soon. A battle pertinent to Greece is coming. Michael, an angel specifically assigned to Israel, is going to be shoulder to shoulder with me. There is something called the writing of truth. He doesn't tell us more about it, but he says, there is something called the writing of truth to which I have access, and I have been instructed to use this moment before I must return to unpack some of the content from the writing of truth that will be helpful to you and those who follow you. Now, Daniel's already told him, okay, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready, lay it on me. And the angel says, I've got to go, but before I go, I'm going to make sure that you understand some information from the writing of truth that is critical for the future of you and your people. So, are you ready? Come next week. For now... What I want to do is help you to prepare for what you're going to hear next week. And so I'm going to give you basically a, over the next seven days, would you please do this so that you're ready. Daniel says, okay, I'm ready. And I want you next week to come and go, okay, I'm ready. How do you get there? So what I want to do is actually go back through what we've just worked through and identify five key principles that tell me, give me insight into what it was that made Daniel ready to receive this. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Daniel understood, that's our word being, by the way, Daniel actually made the connection. He actually understood this vision. He says, okay, I'm getting this. How did he do that? We can actually learn from him in this chapter some things that will help us unpack what we're about to read in chapters 11 and 12 that are coming. So what I'm going to do is extract five key application points from Daniel 10. And you can actually use these this week to get ready for next week. You ready? Here's the first one. Don't waste your life living for the approval of men. You need to come next week prepared to be able to say, I want God's approval. Regardless of whether I have the approval of anyone else, I want God's approval. I live for his pleasure. Now, Daniel was called a man of high esteem twice, which is a way of saying he lives for what God values. Now, that word highly esteemed, going to do a little word study here, it is used elsewhere for what is precious, three passages, what is valuable, 2 Chronicles, what is tasty, actually going to see that uh, in one passage in Daniel, and for treasure. In other words, Daniel, in heaven's eyes, is a rare gem. 
He is someone who has been living for God's pleasure and God says, I value you. Now, I get it. We're all sinners. We're not valuable in ourselves. But Daniel was a man who lived in such a way that God says, I, I like what I see. This is not true of everyone. Listen to John 12, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. This is referring to Jesus. So some of the, the higher-ups in Israel did believe in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Next word, four, explains why. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Daniel lives for the approval of God. And he understood this vision. We need to come saying, I want God's approval. And then you'll understand. You can't serve both. <laughs> Daniel chose God and was esteemed by God. And his is the only approval that matters. By the way, in 1 Peter 3, uh, 13 and 14, and 1 Peter 4, 14, it says this, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The expression, you are blessed, this is a beatitude. It's saying, blessed are those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's a way of saying, God going, yes, congratulations. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Congratulations. Okay, why? Because, here's the reason, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, God's spirit is going to guide, encourage, and energize you. So live for his congratulations, and God's spirit is going to minister to your spirit. Principle number two, ask God for guidance, insight, and provision from a place of humility. In Daniel 10, 12, Here's what this angel said. From the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. Daniel understood something that is taught throughout the rest of Scripture, which is approaching God in humility gets traction. Approaching God in pride gets resistance. James says... But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Daniel was saying, God, I am dealing with delay and pain and fear. But I'm pleading for you to give me insight, not because I've earned it or deserve it, but because you're a good God. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. This is from Isaiah. But listen to this, listen. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Principle number three, see your true enemy. There is something bigger going on than the mere struggles among men. And Paul said this. He said, for example, in Ephesians, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For, explanation, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Other humans are not the enemy. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. What does he say? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yeah, but Jim, the world hates us. 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And I will say yes, but these world dwellers, some of whom may hate us, maybe most of whom hate us, are precisely the ones that we have been left on this planet to rescue. Listen to the bondservant protocol in 2 Timothy. It says this, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may give them the gift, grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may, three results, come to their senses, number two, escape from the snare of the devil, having been, number three, held captive by him to do his will. The people who do not know Jesus have been deluded they have been ensnared. They are captive. Daniel, frankly, did an amazing job of seeing Nebuchadnezzar through this lens. I mean, would he not have ample reason to view Nebuchadnezzar as opposition? On multiple occasions, Nebuchadnezzar said, you know, this is the food everybody needs to eat. And you defy the king, you won't last long. Chapter 2, if you don't interpret the vision, you're gone. Chapter 3, if you don't worship this, you're going to get thrown in the fire. And they did. Wouldn't you be inclined to write off Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> there is no way. And yet Daniel kept going. You can actually meet Nebuchadnezzar, I think, based on chapter 4. You're probably going to meet him in heaven. And as far as I can tell, Daniel and his three friends were the only ones who knew the Lord who kept tracking with him because he is not the enemy. We know who our enemy is. The residents of this world, I, I don't know if it's all or some, are captives who have been ensnared by the devil's schemes and who are doing his bidding because he has clouded their thinking. We don't write them off. We're here on a rescue mission. My image, I, I use this image, it helps me. Uh, so here's the Titanic. And they're actually having a party. They're thinking, this is great. And here I am with a, a little ragtag remnant of people who are in a lifeboat. And I'm trying to convince them, you got to jump, and I'll throw you the lifeline. The world is not our enemy. 
Satan is our adversary and he has clouded the thinking and has held captive and is getting people to do what he wants and that's the opposition. I've shared this story uh, a while back. I didn't give you the whole story, but I'm going to share it with you because I think it helps to illustrate this point of who is the enemy. So in a previous church, not this church, uh, it came to my attention that there was someone, a financial, uh, the accountant for the church was stealing money from the offering. We'll call him Ralph. And first I worked with uh, several people to make sure we had, uh, this was accurate, this wasn't just a perception. Yes, it was. And he was stealing cash from the offering. When he would meet and they would do the counting of the offering, there'd be another uh, person in the, in the office. And he had a technique where he could basically take dollars and throw them under his desk into a container. And he stole a lot of money. So we went through the process of proving irrefutably what he was doing. And then uh, me and another individual, I think the chairman of the elders, confronted him. That we know what you're doing. This is wrong. He began to explain and to share and things like that. But he, he moved to a place of brokenness. I was glad for that. That night, I had been studying a certain passage from Matthew, and I didn't really sleep all that night. Now, this man had demonstrated himself. I mean, it seemed pretty clear, right? This is an enemy of God's church. He's stealing from the church. But I couldn't escape this. Be like father, be like father, be like father. What does that mean? Well, in this case, I, the passage I've been looking at was the one of the unforgiving steward in which someone was shown grace and yet did not show grace to one of his peers. And in that passage, it says, so will my father do to you if you do not forgive one another from the heart. So the next day, we had a staff meeting in which I had asked him to be able to acknowledge to the rest of the team what he had done. And uh, he did that. And then after he had done that and people had... You know, and we'd work, I'd worked through with everyone what needs to happen. He said, I, this is what I did. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? And the rest of the team said, yes, we forgive you. In light of all that God has done for us, how can we do anything other? And then I said, Ralph, here's a gift to you. And I am giving to you twice what you stole from the church. Because restitution requires, in this instance, restitution requires that you give back double. And he gave it to the church. He is not the enemy. 
He's a captive who needs rescue. Now, what was fascinating to me, so that was like on a Tuesday or Wednesday, on that particular week in that particular church, uh, I was able to do something. I wasn't scheduled to preach that Sunday. And we had three services, a Saturday night and a couple Sunday morning services. So I was able to slip away on uh, on one of those services and go visit a nearby church because I wanted to, I had heard about something they were doing and I wanted to be able to confirm it. So I went to that church service, and that was uh, interesting. And they had this kind of greet the people around you time, and we're in kind of a theater kind of setting where the seats are kind of up. So I greeted the people, and then I turned around, and here was Ralphie directly behind me. And so as we're going, you know, they had communion where you go down, and so I kind of delayed a little bit, and I said... uh, I talked to him as we're walking down for communion, and I said, can I take you to lunch? And we did that. So after church, I took him to lunch, and basically what I shared with him is, you have been shown grace. The way you demonstrate that you recognize that is by showing grace to others and making sure you do what is right before God. Now, sometime I might tell you about what has transpired since then, but... For now, what you need to know is the world is populated by people who are captives. And we need to talk to them. We need to figure out how we can say, let me tell you how you can be rescued. Now, I am not advocating denying that sin is sin. But sinners who do not know Jesus need rescue. And we're the ones who can throw them a lifeline. So who in your circle needs a rescue? Find someone who feels trapped or is stuck or has lost hope. You know, we've shared with you these cards. Maybe you can just use this as a vehicle. Show them the card and show them compassion and invite them to come as your friend. You will not understand Daniel 11 if you only see a one-dimensional world in in which all events are just a product of the actions of men. There is far more going on here. The enemy of our souls wants to fool as many people into staying in the state of captives, but Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're taking him on. There is far more going on, and you will only make sense of it when you acknowledge the bigger picture and seek to understand that. Principle number four, know you are not alone and trust God to provide angelic assistance when needed. (laughs) Oh, come on, Jim. Really? Yeah. God did something amazing for Daniel. You know, he sent an angel to give him some information, and I've never experienced that. But this was not a one-off. In fact, the angel who assisted Daniel was simply following a standard angelic job description protocol. (laughs) Really? They have that? Yeah. Here's Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 of angels. It says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? There are angels who have got your back. In fact, all angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of the elect. 
God sees what is needed and he directs angels accordingly. About this time, by the way, do you remember it in Daniel 6? I don't know if this happened before this encounter in chapter 10 or not, but when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and the king came and said, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? What did he say? God sent an angel who closed the lion's mouths. <laughs> he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, no evil will befall you, says God, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. God's got your back. And where necessary, he will instruct angels to watch out for you. That's what their job assignment is. And number five, don't go into denial. Daniel understood the message and the vision. Clearly, the, the prince of Persia, a demonic being, did not want Daniel and in turn God's people to know about the information that was unveiled in chapters 10 through 12. He's actually fighting Daniel and saying, uh-uh. And Michael comes, <laughs> and they're able to say, uh-huh. And so he comes to communicate, here's some information from the book of truth that you need to know, which Daniel in turn writes down so that we can know. So when someone says, oh, that's not that important, Jim, why do we need a boring history lesson? Recognize that minimizing this information aids the desire of the enemy of our souls who wants to keep us in the dark. Our true adversary prefers for us to be unaware of his plans or worse, to think that understanding his plan is of little consequence. Don't stay ignorant. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that, why did he do this? So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is what we're talking about with challenge number three that we're going to be addressing Satan wants to take advantage of us. Our successful strategy against him, recognize what he's up to, where we put ourselves at a disadvantage, and how to turn the odds in our favor. And Daniel 11 through 12 is given, going to give us precise guidance into the tools Satan has deployed and will yet deploy on the world scene to oppose God and his people. So in order for you to be ready... I want you to do five things between now and next Sunday. I want you to be able to affirm before God five things. God, I am devoted to living for you alone. I want to live for your pleasure. Come into this room having settled that question. I want to live for you alone. Number two, help me understand, not because I deserve it, but because you are a God of grace. Number three, give me the eyes to see our true adversary. The world is not our enemy, even though they hate us. 
Number four, thank you that I'm not alone. I know you see me and will provide help, even using angels where needed. And number five, I commit to understanding the essentials from Daniel 11. Coming to this room, having put a check in each of those five boxes, and we'll get somewhere. Let's pray toward that end. Father, we want to live for your pleasure alone. We do not live for the pleasure of men. We do not live for likes. We live for you. Help us understand this vision, not because we deserve it or because we're really something, simply because you're a good God and it pleases you to reveal to your children the things they need to know. Father, would you please give us eyes to see our true adversary? It is so easy to get sucked into viewing those who have hurt us or disappointed us as the problem when in fact they are the captives. Thank you that we are not alone. Thank you that you see that you've got our back and that you have sent forth ministering spirits who are there to help for the cause of those who belong to you. And, Father, we are declaring our desire to understand Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 and to get it. We are asking for your help that we might be a people who understand and who see and who make the connections so that we might live well and live in a way that gives you pleasure in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.